0: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, February 6th, 2014. Yeah, warning, this is one of those programs that's going to be all over the theological map today. I apologize for that. Sometimes it's just necessary. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. And the idea here is slow down. You got to slow down. Yeah, listen, when it comes to um, being uh, somebody who is skilled at and has a Fairly decent command of what the Bible is about, and uh, and you're not biblically illiterate. This is not something that happens overnight. This is something that takes some time, and so you know, think of it as like you've you know, a tree has been planted, and you want to water it, and you want those roots to run deep, and uh, you know, and the deeper they run, the. Less susceptible you are to strange, bizarre winds of doctrine and theology, and you know, at the cornerstone of all of this is the proper distinction of law and gospel, and uh, you know, and rightly knowing how to deal with the law, and also to understand that we are Christians, and that that means we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. So much of the bad preaching today has kind of as its you know you know headwaters, if you would that um, the pastor is oblivious to rightly being able to distinguish between law and gospel and thinks that the way that you make good Christians, make good people, is by preaching a healthy, steady dose of law, 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 law. No, 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 no. The law, its primary function is to show you that you're a sinner. And if all you're going to do is give people a steady dose of law, 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 what you're going to end up doing is uh, creating... Atheists, agnostics, uh, hypocrites, Pharisees, and people who've said, "That's it, I'm out of here" because I can't do this. Right? Uh See, that's the problem. And and see, we as human beings, we automatically gravitate towards. Uh, the law. And the reason why we do that is because we have the law written on our heart. uh, This is what Romans chapter 2 says. It's written right there in our hearts. And so we understand the law. And it's not a bad thing that the law is written on our hearts. It's not a bad thing at all. Uh, Without it written there, um, it would be very difficult to actually convince somebody that they're a sinner because as soon as you start preaching the law correctly, people immediately feel, well, convicted. And they should. Yeah, that's because none of us, not me, not you, none of us are are righteous in and of ourselves. In fact, as long as we have our sinful flesh to contend with, we will daily have to struggle against our sinful nature. And, uh, And oftentimes we'll find ourselves in situations where, well, we haven't done the right thing we've done the wrong thing or we haven't thought the right thing we've thought the wrong thing and uh, and so we sin against god in you know in a multitude of different ways uh, by thought by word by deed by the things we do and by the things we don't do yeah there's uh, there's sins of omission yeah you think you've got those uh, you know you got the sins of commission figured out wait till you start focusing on the sins of omission the things you ought to be doing that you're not doing yeah And see, then, you know, you realize, you know, I'm hopeless in and of myself. I've got nothing. Right. That's the job of the law to tell you you got nothing. It strips everything away from you so that through the gospel, Christ can give you everything. And see, it's not that God makes us sinners. That's not what he does. But uh, we were made sinners in Adam and Eve. We were all born dead in trespasses and sins. And what happens is, is that through good preaching of the law, law designed to convict you of your sins, well, what ends up happening is, is that from your experience, you feel like you've been made into a sinner. And, you know, it's not that you have, it's just that the law is actually shedding light on and holding a mirror to the condition that already exists. But see, the thing is, is that the law makes us sinners so that the gospel can make us saints. The law shows uh, our utter depravity and wretchedness in need of a Savior, and the gospel clothes our nakedness with Christ's righteousness, so that we don't have to fear God. We stand before God justified, and we stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and it is all 100 percent gift you don't have to earn it you don't have to try for it. you don't have to add to it it's all accomplished for you you have in christ then have been set free from the law it's condemnations you've been set free from sin death and the devil and you are now finally free to live in true freedom and true freedom is not then chasing after your uh, the desires of your sinful flesh that's slavery True freedom then is shown in the blueprint of God's law in which we can now truly daily, you know, thank God for and think that it's a, it's a fantastic and marvelous thing and meditate on it and, and, and see that this is the blueprint for freedom, not slavery, freedom. And only those who are free in Christ have, can actually achieve that state. Now, a lot, kind of the point that I was making, and then I, you know, I had to get the gospel in there, but, um, so much of the bad theology today is a result of people who've come face-to-face with God's law and and have despaired of their own ability to actually keep it. And rather than fleeing to the gospel, maybe they haven't heard the gospel, maybe they don't understand the gospel, maybe they truly don't believe the gospel – uh, but for whatever reason, the, the, you know, a lot of the bad theologies that are out there as, are as a result of people coming up with their own schemes for silencing the thunder of Sinai, and uh, and you, you can't. <laughs> there's no, there is no way to do it other than the way it's been done in Christ, all for you. All right. That's monologue today. Let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start off with a Los Lobos update, uh, kind of circle back and take a look a little bit at um, you know more seeker-driven bad tithing theology. Uh, this one comes from the Rock Church in uh, San Diego, California. Miles McPherson. We're not going to listen to the whole sermon, but you know we're going to we're going to note the quid pro quo here, and we're going to note the quid pro quo and how. What it really does is condemn. That's really what it does. Then what we will do is uh, we'll probably have just enough time to do that, and we'll take a break, and uh, when we come back, I have a Perry Noble update, and I have an emergent church update, and that will probably take up the balance of the second half of the first hour. And then in hour number two, we're going to head back up to uh, Aurora, Illinois, uh, to the orchard, and we're going to listen to really what I consider to be a sad and tragic sermon. A sad and tragic sermon about, get this, embracing doubt. Embracing doubt. And, uh, you yeah, know, this is one of, this is, uh, the best way I can describe it is is that the person who's reached this point st- doesn't grasp the gospel or rejects it outright and is haunted by Jesus in some way, but uh they they there there's no certainty within them that Jesus actually is the Son of God, the way, the truth and the life that he really died for their sins, you know things like that and uh this the sermon that we're going to be listening to is kind of the best way to put it the fruit of um what happens when somebody uh, has as a steady diet in their theological reading books by Rob Bell. Uh, Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Paget—you know the whole emergent guys and their, you know, postmodern nonsense that they that they kick out there and sell under the guise of Christian theology when it's anything but. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And uh, since we're doing a Los Lobos update, well, that requires me to do this.
1: You touch the ground,
0: Hungry like the wolf, those wolves out there in sheep's clothing. Yeah, yeah, they are very hungry, and usually the thing they're hungry for is money. Lots and lots and lots and lots of money. Now, keep in mind, this is one of my perennial points here at Fighting for the Faith, is that the seeker-driven movement is the most expensive way to do church ever invented by a human. Um, it is a human uh, it 's of human origin it 's not of divine origin it this is not the way to do church revealed in scripture oh no, not at all um and as a result of it, you know these huge buildings the the smoke and lights show the stage decorations that have to be changed for each and every uh, uh sermon uh t- series that they do i mean you know to the multi site all the and the and the staff necessary to pull this church model off—it's um, so expensive that um, the uh, seeker-driven guys—they—they um, they dabble with the uh, word of faith heresy. Uh, Perry Noble uh, in the sermon we played last week—I mean, flat out—you know—sided with it. Um, the reason being is that um, they've got to find a way to motivate their people to feel like they are obligated to give um 10 of their gross annual income uh and so in order to do that they make promises to people that hey if you do this then god's going to bless you if you do you know in fact god can't bless you unless you do this and it all comes back to a confusion of law and gospel here's another example of that from miles mcpherson down at the rock church in san diego california here we go
2: how do we start our services
0: You know, All right, I, now you can't see this, but uh, he's, he's. How do you start? How do we start our services? We start on our knees. So uh, Miles McPherson is now on his knees. Listen carefully to what comes next.
2: Did you guys get your workout in this morning? No. Get up early before the, before the birds get up. Get that sweat going. Uh, How many of you, by a show of hands in all the campuses, how many of you would like to have a blessed marriage?
0: Mm, How would you like to have a blessed marriage? Hmm, Okay, he wants people to raise their hand. Hmm, I feel like I'm being sold something.
2: Then surrender it to God.
0: What does that mean exactly? What does it mean to surrender my marriage to God? Where can I go in the Bible to find those great passages that say... If you want a blessed marriage, you must surrender it to God. Hmm.
2: How many of you would like to have a blessed education? Surrender it to God. Hmm. Okay. Like to have a blessed career, not a job, a blessed career. Surrender it to God.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if I want a blessed career, I need to surrender it to God. What would you do with somebody like Tiger Woods? I mean, the guy is just an amazing golfer, although he's, you know, got character flaws and I'm being polite. Um, the point is, is that he's a Buddhist. Um, how about all those Muslims, you know, who have these blessed careers um, um, and, you know, atheists who have blessed How did they get that if they didn't surrender it to God? And it's, it's as if, okay, well, we're all here to um, to learn how we can have blessed things. You know, a blessed marriage, a blessed career, a blessed whatever. And uh, we've got to surrender it to God. What exactly does that mean?
2: How many of you would like to have blessed finances?
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, yeah, my ears are ringing. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I feel the con coming. I'm
2: trying to get paid. That's right. I'm trying to get paid. (laughs) Surrender it to God. That does not mean give all your money to the church at all. It means honor it with God. We're going to talk about that today.
0: Yeah. And what he's going to mean with the tithe.
2: Thank you so much for your faithfulness. Lord, I know everybody's trying to get paid. But it's about keeping what you get paid. It's about enjoying what you get paid. And so I pray that you would encourage us to be givers. Encourage us to trust you with our finances and our resources. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's see your Bibles. Let's see your Bibles. Say word. word. Very good. Take out your lesson plan and turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14. First book of the Bible, 14th chapter. We started the Rock Church in the year 2000, February 27th. It will be 14 years next month. We have uh, three campuses. One here in Point Loma, East County, North County. We had an exploratory meeting in South Bay a month ago. We had 1,000 people show up. That are interested, so we're looking for a place there. We are planning preliminarily an exploratory uh, event in City Heights. We have a place. Do you think it's
0: by accident that this tithing sermon begins with not really a passage of scripture, but with him casting vision for all of the super expensive expansions that they're going to be making there at the Rock Church?
2: An event there as well, City Heights. Amen. Uh, two people know that, so I know a lot of people are freaking out what does that mean on <laughs> my staff. So, well, we'll, you know, we'll get it organized but to tell you that. And um, uh, we have opportunity around San Diego to do ministry. We had our East County campus um, six months ago. I don't even remember what, how many months ago. Um, and we, our, our attendance has gone up a couple thousand people. Uh, we have ministry in Haiti. We have an orphanage now. We're going to show you pictures of, a little later in the service about something that's amazing going on down there. And at all the growth, we have 140, 140, 150 volunteer led ministries in the community, 800 small groups in all the different various ministries in the church. And even though we've been growing, especially over the last year and expanding in reach and even people, the income has not grown. Now, our income comes from you. And so I want to teach on tithing and what it means to give. Now, if you're new and you're okay, so there you have it. It's a direct connection here. Hey, you know, we, I have this vision for
0: growing the Rock Church, and uh, despite the fact that you know we want to keep we want to keep growing the Rock Church, uh, you all are just not given uh, enough money to keep up with the growth. So I'm going to teach you about tithing. You better start tithing because I've got this vision from God to grow the Rock Church. And uh, you, you have an obligation. You want, you want your finances to be blessed now, don't you? You see, here's the deal. At least I'll, I'll give him this, is that um, he was honest. We know what his motivation is because uh, his goal is to, uh, to grow the church, to meet what he, he expects is the vision for the growth for the church so they can have a gazillion multi-sites in, the, in San Diego County. Okay, so there's the direct connection.
2: This is a church about money. We do this every year, talk about it, but let me preface it by saying this. My job is to tell you what the Bible says, and then your job is to go to God and do what God tells you to do. God is always going to tell you to do what the Bible says, so you've got to make sure that the Bible says it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, and uh, the, it, like I pointed out in last week's episode, you know, are Christians required to tithe? Um, the tithe is a Mosaic Covenant command. Christians are not under compulsion when they give. They are to give whatever they believe that God wants them to give. I know it sounds kind of subjective, but they're to give with a cheerful heart, not under compulsion. And there is no set amount for Christians to give. And the idea then is is that, uh, yeah... Um, the Mosaic covenant does not apply to Christians, and if you make the, put those demands on Christians that they have to keep the Mosaic covenant, uh, you know, commands to tithe, then they're also required to keep all of the law: the circumcision law, the kosher laws, the laws that require the men to appear before God three times a year in Jerusalem. All of that's required. Then, if you're gonna if you're gonna require them to keep that, you've got to keep the whole thing. And so, and notice that already we've got this setup here that you know somehow god's blessings are contingent upon something that we've got to do or surrender Uh, this is again a major confusion of law and gospel
2: especially when it comes to money because people's panties get up in a bunch when you talk about money uh god wants more than your money he wants your heart now if you worship money more valuable than your heart then that's your issue but god wants your heart if he has your heart then he's got everything because we give our heart to Jesus. And so don't get hung up on it trying to get my money. We're not trying to get your money. You know,
0: I, I don't mean to be contentious, but I mean, that's kind of a slogan phrase thrown out there. And my question is, um, if you're going to say we give our hearts to Jesus, show me in the Bible where this theology is taught so I can understand exactly what is meant by that phrase.
2: We want all the resources we can get so we can do all the ministry we can get. Bottom line: More money we get, more more people we get, more volunteers we get, more resources and connections and relationships. The more people we can help, it's really. Yeah,
0: at least he's honest, you know. But see, the thing is, is that uh, you know, are these mega churches in the long run, run really helping people? They're watering down the message. They're strip mining God's word and to give people, you know five easy tips and tricks to make their marriage better to make their career better to have a more fulfilling life to discover their purpose uh you know things of that nature to have better behaved children and then in the summer times they preach through uh, movie ser- uh, sermons and you know stuff like that i mean in the long run are they really helping people are they really making disciples? Are they really, truly helping people uh, by preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins, or are these places really becoming just really large, super expensive self-help centers? And uh, and the people who attend these churches, um, you know, remain biblically illiterate. I, I think that you know the second one is for the most part what's really happening in these places.
2: It's really that simple. And so your job is just to be obedient to what the Bible tells you to do. That's it. So my challenge is you to listen. Now, at the end of the service, we're going to introduce to you a 90-day tithe challenge where you would say, I don't tithe now, but I'm going to tithe for 90 days, and I'm going to test God. And after 90 days, if I'm not satisfied with the results of my tithing, the church, the rock, will give you your money back. Oh, man.
0: Serious. 90-day tithe challenge. And if you're not satisfied with the results of the blessings that God gives you, and why is God blessing you? Oh, yeah, because you're purchasing the blessing by giving money to the Rock Church. That's really the the idea here is that God's sitting up there in heaven. Oh, you know, he really, 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 really wants to bless you, but, mm, well, he can't. Nope, because every time he keeps looking in your wallet, you know what he sees in there? He sees his money, and because, well, his money's in your wallet and not in, um, in the treasury in these seeker-driven megachurches. Well, God, well, he can't bless you. But as soon as you fork over God's money to a seeker-driven megachurch, well. I mean, God says, "Well, that's a horse of a different color." And so, what'll happen is, is that you know you'll be walking down the street, you know, just minding your own business, you know, kind of singing a song to yourself. And uh, next thing you know, I mean, there'll be a guy up on a ladder and he's painting, you know, you know, you know, the facade of a building, and he looks like he's losing his balance, and he's about to dump a bucket of paint on your head, and all of a sudden, you know, bring he stops in midair. And you walk on by, and as soon as you're passed, then the bucket falls, and you've been spared. See, you earn that blessing because, well, you took your mo- God's money out of your wallet and put it into the coffers of the Rock Church.
2: i will say that again at the end. We'll explain it, but you sign a little covenant, saying, "You know, I don't tie now, but I'm gonna I, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna start tithing for ninety days, and and after ninety days." The Bible wasn't true. In other words, God didn't bless me, as we're going to talk about, and we'll explain it to you. We'll give you your money back. Okay, that's how much we are confident God is faithful. Amen? Amen? Amen. Mm, yeah,
0: but see, he's contingently faithful. He's not faithful. He's just contingently faithful. If you do your part. Now, I'm not going to play the rest of this sermon, but you get the idea. Already from the intro, you know exactly where this is going to go. God commands it. He says he'll bless it. You better get busy um, and obey God, and we're going to challenge you for the 90-day tithe challenge. Yeah, and yet if they would preach the gospel and the goodness of Christ and his forgiveness and his mercy and his gratuitous gratuitous love and forgiveness of our sins, I think they might get more people who just want to continue to support that financially so that more and more people can hear the good news of what Jesus has done for them, rather than being burdened again with the Mosaic Covenant. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, if you could do so, my email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Christian. we get back, we've got a Perry Noble update and an emergent church update. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
1: Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking
0: your false doctrine now.
3: Presents Church Day Select. And now Max Holiday's Bird Cage Theater proudly presents
4: Sessions with Mildred.
3: Uh, Do you know why I called you in here today?
4: Am I in trouble?
3: Oh, no, no, no. Of course not. We're just worried about you.
4: Is this about my tithes? You know, I'm so sorry. I forgot the $5. You hate me now, don't you?
3: Oh, no. No, you've been very good about meeting your tithes quota. Besides, if this had been about your tithes, we would have sent someone to your house. I just wanted to discuss your attitude because some of the elders have started to talk about it.
4: My attitude
3: oh yes your attitude
4: you see we're all about
3: our congress having audacious faith but we've noticed that you seem to be having difficulty being audacious during services
4: um are you talking about the holy ghost tokey pokey is i not dancing right you know i i tried practicing at home but when i put my whole self in i fell over and injured fluffles who's fluffles well, uh, he's my cat, and after I fell down, I didn't know if he was breathing.
3: Okay, we, we seen you straight from the top. Look, you don't have to dance during the services, but you could at least start singing. I mean, what's the point of having jumbo screens with thing-along lyrics if people aren't being audacious and using them?
4: When I was younger, I had this bird, and I decided to take it outside with me and start singing to it, and a hawk dove down and snatched Muffin from my finger.
3: Oh, dear. Uh, I'm so sorry about Muffin, but let's get back to the present point. If you don't want to sing or dance during the service, then I guess we'll let you have make that choice. But if nothing else, would you please be more agitated and just do the hand motions?
4: Well, last year, I had my gerbil outside and his hamster ball, and... Uh, the interview
3: is not going as expected. Well,
4: I was practicing hand motions, and my bracelet caught a glare in a driver's eye, and the car swerved, and it hit Mr. Cuddles. He flew into the mouth of an octopus living in the sewer. Apparently, he didn't taste very good, so he spit him back up into the street, where my neighbor ran him over with his lawnmower... Which broke the hamster ball, but not Mr. Cuddles. So then Mr. Cuddles escaped, and then a dog thought Mr. Cuddles was a chew toy, so he chewed on him. But Mr. Cuddles didn't like that, so he survived, and I got him back.
3: Well, that's finally something positive. I bet you anything that Mr. Cuddles would love for you to be more audacious in church.
4: Well, but he died a week later from rabies that he got from the octopus. Uh, well, I think we'll have to
3: schedule a second meeting for you sometime in the next... Never. I mean months.
0: more for travel than you need to. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your megachurch, especially if they're trying to bind you to the Mosaic Covenant and saying God demands your 10%. Don't worry, he'll bless you. Uh, Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. I always hate having to talk about uh, the fact that we're listener-supported radio after we do a segment on tithing. Uh, bad, bad theology on timing, tithing. Uh, tithing you know. So here's the idea, is that we can't do what we're doing without your assistance. And I can't promise you that God's going to bless you, uh, make your career better, uh, make things spicier in the bedroom between you and the missus or anything like that because you're supporting Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. The one thing I can guarantee, though, is that by supporting us, we will continue to do what we do here, and that is— Sound biblical doctrine, good discernment, proclaiming law and gospel, and proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins in order to set free people free from deception and uh, the wolves that, uh, well, peddle it. You know what I'm saying. So, way you support us is by visiting our website fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate the other says join our crew. When you join our crew you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it. To the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us and if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana zip code 46038 and Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Oh, it really doesn't
3: matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair.
0: What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. That's right. It's time for a Perry Noble update. A hoax, a a charlatan, a A joke, joke, but they love me.
3: Everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. As long as I do it with a flair, it doesn't matter what I say or do. Anyway, so this comes to us via the pajamapages.com blog. Uh, this would be the blog of Dr. Duncan uh, in Anderson, uh, South Carolina. The headline for this reads, Perry Noble says Planned Parenthood is more Christian than you. (laughs) And man, I wish this was hyperbole, but it's not. So this this Perry Noble update comes to us via uh, Dr. Duncan's analysis of a recent blog post posted by Perry Noble. Now, let me explain to you what the hubbub is about. And that is this, is that there are many... Uh, Girl Scout chapters out there around the country, who are supporting Planned Parenthood. Yeah, that's right. The number one provider of abortions in America um, is in part getting their funding from some divisions of the Girl Scouts of America. Now, the headquarters of the Girl Scouts of America does not officially support uh, the uh, the you know Planned Parenthood. That doesn't change the fact that there are chapters that do, okay? And so there are Christians out there who in their fight to save the lives of unborn children have called for a boycott of the Girl Scout cookies, okay? Now, I know for some of you, you know, that's going to be a tough thing. You know, the idea of not having this year's <clears throat> harvest of Girl Scout cookies, uh, you yeah, that's a little bit tough to forego, uh, but the idea is this: is that uh, what we're dealing with here is the systematic clinical murder of millions and millions and millions of of human beings, and uh, and so Perry Noble is a guy who, well, he 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 loves his Girl Scout cookies, and so he took to his blog to comment on what he considered to be a ridiculous boycott, and uh, Doctor Duncan of um, Anderson uh, University there, um, I think did a fine job of um, taking on Perry Noble's comments and showing them to be the absurdity that they are. But let me read. Dr. Duncan writes, he says, uh, Perry Noble says Planned Parenthood is more Christian than you unless you give them your money, that is, and then you're okay with pro-life Perry Noble. Now, judging by Noble's Twitter feed, something got under his skin last week about a campaign that some pro-lifers have organized in order to persuade people not to purchase Girl Scout cookies because some of the proceeds from those sales go to support Planned Parenthood, an organization that promotes and performs abortions. On Monday, he posted an article on his blog where he unloaded on so-called Christians. and, And on his blog, he puts the term Christians in quotes, okay? And that's the important part, all right? Perry Noble, in his blog post, literally, you know, if you're going to boycott Planned Parenthood, you are a quote-unquote Christian, which means you're not really a Christian. That's the point of what Perry was saying. So where he unloaded on so-called quote-unquote Christians for opposing Planned Parenthood, which he defended as Christ-like and mourned the idea of their potential demise. This this is no joke. I I will be reading to you the quotes from Perry Noble's site, where he literally says that Planned Parenthood is more Christian than many Christians. I know. It's absolutely flabbergasting. But I, 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 I continue. Dr. Duncan then says, For an evangelical pastor to embrace Planned Parenthood is shocking, yet telling. Noble who appears to care not one whit about the primary victims of abortion, uses this story as an opportunity to mock and shame other Christians, including his own denomination, Noble, who won't allow anyone to attribute anything but the noblest of intentions to anything he does, doesn't hesitate before attributing base motives to anyone else. In this case, Noble's targets are unbalanced, busybodies who aren't really even true Christians. And the reason why Dr. Duncan says that is because, well, Perry Noble puts the word Christians in quotes. So here's here's quote number one from Perry Noble's blog. This is what Perry Noble said, quote... The term abortion is nothing more than a sin category they are obsessed with. Unfortunately, far too many quote-unquote Christians always seem to be obsessed with the sins of others way more than their own faults and failures. Far too often, the people who are most obsessed to a certain type of sin are obsessed with the sins of others only so they will not have to deal with their own faults and failures. (laughs) That's a direct quote from Perry Noble. Could it possibly be that the reason why people obsess about abortion is because it is the systematic murder of millions upon millions of human beings? I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. And, I mean, apparently Noble doesn't seem to realize that abortion actually kills a human being. What are we up to now? Like, what, 55 million abortions, 60 million, something like that since Roe v. Wade? I mean, this – it's unbelievable. But we continue. Uh, Dr. Duncan comments. He says, Now, Noble apparently embraces the, war, embraces the uh, war on women commonplace by framing his despised Christian pro-lifers as people eagerly wanting to hate women who have had abortions. If we would just meet someone like that, as Perry has, our eyes apparently would be opened. Here's the next quote from Perry Noble. Perry Noble writes, he says, now one of the biggest problems with some people who vehemently oppose abortion is they have never sat down and locked eyes with a woman who has had an abortion. By the way, I have. Not only have I locked eyes with a woman who's had an abortion, um, I've been able to preach the gospel to the woman who had an abortion and in my lifetime I've actually had the opportunity to help a woman who was considering abortion not abort her child so I'm this is not something you know I'm sitting on the sidelines just wanting to yell at people I mean this is ridiculous but uh, Perry Noble continues he says now abortion carries a scar that runs so deep that most people never fully recover from the damaging impact it has on them this is true and Noble then says and so when quote unquote Christians, and it's in quotes, enter the arena with these wounded people, shouting words of condemnation with attitudes of hate and disdain. The people who so desperately need the healing of Jesus are actually pushed away from him because the people who are supposed to be his hands and feet are slapping them and not accepting them. <laughs> what planet is Perinoble Noble from? <clears throat> Dr. Duncan then comments. He says, you know who never recovers from a, from an abortion? Babies. That's right. They never recover. They've been murdered. <clears throat> he then continues, this is Dr. Duncan, so you know who Perry Noble never considers in his argument? Dead babies. He never considers them. That's right. Dr. Duncan's absolutely right. Now it is good it 's a good thing for pastors and Christians to care for women who have had abortions who need healing and forgiveness, but noble 's effort at helping such women is made grotesque by his antipathy towards Christians who are also concerned about protecting the first victims of abortion and in starving abortionists of their funds, they need to continue their grim trade this It, it makes perfect sense you want do you want to help end abortion? make it so that they can, you know The the abortion clinics can't even stay open as a business, and then you're saving the lives of of babies. But this is not how Perry Noble argues, okay? Dr. Duncan continues. He says, now, the evil truth is that Planned Parenthood is an abortion factory. Planned Parenthood kills babies and scars women. Yet, Pastor Noble brags that he is happy for his money to go to them, and he insists that you send them your money too. He appears to have uncritically accepted Planned Parenthood's propaganda that it exists to help people, which makes it better than the people behind the boycott. Now, here's the next direct quote. This is a direct quote from Perry Noble. Quote, It is really sad when Planned Parenthood and the Girl Scouts are actually acting more Christ-like than many of the people who are taking aim at them through this boycott. (laughs) Really? Please explain to me how murdering children is Christ-like, Perry Noble. Come on. Yeah, that's a direct quote. Let me read the quote again. This is a direct quote from Perry Noble's blog. It is really sad when Planned Parenthood and the Girl Scouts are actually acting more Christ-like than many of the people who are taking aim at them through this boycott. Wow, that is breathtakingly egregious. And if it shows you that he's not qualified to even be a pastor, I don't know what does. Dr. Duncan comments, Possibly because they're so Christ-like, Noble wants Planned Parenthood to continue and to thrive. God forbid that they should ever shut their doors. Here's the next quote from Perry Noble. What if this boycott is so effective that Planned Parenthood has major financial setbacks as a result? The boycott groups would sit back and yell, we win! My question would be, what did you win? You succeeded in making a point, but you still haven't made a difference. (laughs) Oh man, serious, really? Perry Noble doesn't see that shutting down abortion clinics makes a difference. It would make a difference to the babies who are being murdered. Uh, uh, this is unbelievable. Doctor Duncan comments. He said, "I it would make a difference to the babies. The difference between life and death, even the reason for." The cookie boycott boycott is that the Girl Scouts have in the past and continue to financially support Planned Parenthood. Noble weekly attempts to refute the claim by linking to the Girl Scouts' website, which states that the national organization has no formal agreement with Planned Parenthood, yet that doesn't answer the objection. It remains true that many local and regional divisions within Girl Scouts do support Planned Parenthood, so a boycott would have some effect, even if only small, in slowing the flow of murderous money to Planned Parenthood. Noble argues that if we boycott the Girl Scouts because their money flows to an organization we disagree with, we would need to withdraw from almost all commerce. This is a lame argument. Here's what Qu- uh, Noble said, quote: "Everyone who calls themselves a Christian needs to go to their pantry and make sure all of the food they have was produced and packaged by Christian companies who fully support a conservative agenda because then if not, then they would be hypocritically involved in this movement. We also need to consider the cars that we drive. After all, the automakers are probably highly involved politically in some causes with which we do not agree. We then should consider the furniture in our homes, who it was made by, and the people who made our television, computers, and cell phones. <laughs> this is a lame argument. I'm seriously, did, did his mother drop him on his head when he was born? <laughs> Dr. Duncan comments, while much of Noble's argument is vile... This is just silly. Buying a Girl Scouts cookie is categorically different from all the examples he offers. First, everyone who purchases the cookies knows that the whole point is to raise funds we 're not so much buying a food product as we are making a donation to an organization that gives us a treat in return for our contribution. This is not a balanced economic transaction where both buyer and seller benefit equally. We know that we come out poorer in the deal so that the scouts can provide han- a profit handsomely from our contribution Second. We all do make moral choices with many of the purchases that we make. Look at all of the environmentally sensitive automobiles and supermarket products that are marketed on the basis of their moral goodness. We are attracted to moral products, and we can be repulsed by immoral products. For example... Several years ago, the Pajama Pages domain was registered at GoDaddy because it was the cheapest at the time that I registered the name, and it hadn't started its notorious ad campaign yet. The company's obnoxious and sexually demeaning advertising Prompted me to transfer my business to another provider. It would appear that I was not alone and that GoDaddy has noticed that it should improve the moral tone of its advertising, as we witnessed in the more decent advertising in the Super Bowl last night. Third, we have the knowledge that helped by the boycott campaign that there is a connection between a cookie donation and an organization that gleefully kills babies created in God's image. If you don't know what the scouts did with your donation, I don't see a serious moral problem in the transaction. Once you do know, though, you are more morally complicit in what the scouts do with your money. Whether boycotts are effective is another question for another blog. But Noble's argument that they are immoral isn't just flawed. It demonstrates a hypocritical double standard. In the I'm really a pro-lifer preface to his argument, Noble assures us that he has never knowingly voted for a pro-choice candidate and that it would be difficult to do so in the future. Fair enough. But if it is virtuous for Noble to withhold one thing from a value from abortionists, that is his vote, why is it any less virtuous for others to withhold money from them? After all, when you vote for a pro-abortion candidate, you aren't actually voting for abortion itself, but for a person who will attempt to direct our tax payments to organizations like uh, Planned Parenthood. If it's acceptable in Noble's Book of Virtues to oppose tax payments to abortionists, Why is it unacceptable to withhold my money from them and to encourage others to do so too? Noble's argument then is muddled and contradictory. Why has he made such a big deal about it then? Well, because it's an opportunity to hate on other Christians and boy, does he appear to relish it. He repeatedly questions the salvation of people who support the boycott by putting their status as Christians inside quotation marks. For example, quote, This is noble. If Jesus didn't come for the purpose of condemnation, then I'm quite sure he hasn't asked his followers to do it on his behalf. And he puts his followers in quotes. Far too many, quote unquote, Christians always seem to be obsessed with the sins of others when, quote unquote, Christians enter the arena with these wounded people. If Satan can get people who call themselves, quote unquote, Christians to become obsessed with issues other than the gospel. If you ever had an abortion and have been hurt or wounded by those who call themselves Christians, I would please plead with you for your forgiveness, and so on. Those are all quotes from Noble. He also uses his quotation marks to declare that abortion itself isn't really a sin. Here's a quote. Noble says, The term abortion is nothing more than a sin category they are obsessed with. The people who are most opposed to a certain type of quote-unquote sin are obsessed with the sins of others. Near the end of the argument, he asserts that he's fully opposed to abortion, though probably in the same way that Neville Chamberlain was fully opposed to Hitler. There's opposed, and then there's nobles fully opposed. He can say he's opposed to it as much as he likes, but practically he supports abortion by helping to pay for it. Not only does he take a shot at Christians in general, he mocks and belittles his own denomination for its support of the boycott of Disney in the 1990s for its financial support of same-sex couples. Uh, Here's the quote from Noble, quote, By the way, how did the whole Baptist boycott of Disney work out back in 1996? Last time I checked, Disney is doing better than ever, and the SBC had less than 4,000 delegates at their convention last summer. Hmm. Yeah, again, that's a direct quote. Duncan uh, responds, Do you hear the contempt here? He's digging the dagger into the denomination that helped start his own church, then twisting it by gloating over its numerical decline. By the way, what does Disney's balance sheet have to do with anything? Abolitionists failed for centuries in the face of the growing commercial success of slavery, yet their efforts to defeat it were virtuous, regardless of the immediate outcome. Besides, the 1996 Disney boycott had a point. They were worried that if an apparently family-centered company like Disney could treat same-sex couples as if they were married without any negative consequences, the effect would ripple down into culture and up into our government. From the perspective of 2014, they were <laughs> they were prescient, Little of what Noble says and does has engaged me as emotionally as this awful post has done. Planned Parenthood tried to kill one of the dearest and sweetest people I know. By God's providence, she survived. Now I see Pastor Noble encouraging his church to funnel their money to this evil organization so that it can try again. How utterly hateful. Wow. Yep. That's, yeah. it's unbelievable. I mean... That this man is a pastor. And and, and uh, this is what Dr. Duncan says is right. Perry Noble over and again in the words that he says, the tone that he takes, and the people he attacks shows that he really actually hates Christians. He really, truly does. All right, moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern philharmonic orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. That's right. As you can tell, uh, this uh, orchestra has freed themselves from the modernist definitions of notes that really limit uh, artistic expression. And they're now just being guided by the spirit as they play this rendition of Strauss's also sprach Zarathustra. This is so avant garde. Music is so much better without, you know, tightly defined definitions of notes, don't you think? All right, so now I've been saying this for a while now that the uh, the emergent church movement—I mean, they have—they were kicked to the curb as soon as um, Brian McLaren went full on liberal, and uh, and of course Doug, uh, Doug Paget, and Tony Jones followed suit, and they've been—they since then they've really been trying to pick up the pieces. And kind of reignite the emergent flame, if you would, and and get the torch to actually work again, uh, so that they can be invited to big mega churches and be celebrated by the seeker driven guys and and have their books read and discussed and debated and things like that and uh, it 's not working under the name emergent Church, and so you know they 've tried getting the band back together, and they, they haven 't really been successful, and so they 've Come up with another idea. They've rebranded themselves and they have launched their own blog at Patheos called. The Cana Initiative, all right? And their very, 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 very first blog post from the Cana Initiative, which is really just the Emergent Church rebranded, has come out. And I would like to read it to you. And here's the name of it, A Generous Orthodoxy, Voices from the Cana Initiative. You might as well say Voices from the Emergent Church. The article reads, quote, If you have a new world, you need a new church. You have a new world, says Brian McLaren in the book The Church on the Other Side. Many years ago, I sent an essay I I sent an essay on the crisis in the church to the editor of The Christian Century. He returned it with the comment, quote, That Christianity faces overwhelming changes today is not news. We're interested in solutions. So this blog series is about the solutions. Too many, from the top denominational leaders uh, to people in the pews, seem paralyzed by the problems. Fixated on crises, uh, we fail to notice that people all around us are reinventing Christianity, inspired by Jesus' radical way of compassion, inspired by their experiences of grace, inspired by a redemptive community, inspired by initiatives that bridge. Differences, whatever their reasons. They are galvanized into action, collective action. People are coming together to do the things that they know and believe to be right, to be the change they wish to see in the world. New networks are coming together locally, regionally, and nationally. Now, what's the key phrase that's the problem in that paragraph? Here it is. Are you ready? Reinventing Christianity. Christianity. Cannot be reinvented. According to Scripture, Christianity is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Mm -hmm. And if you're familiar with the Nicene Creed, there's this wonderful little phrase in there. It says, We believe in one holy Catholic an apostolic church. Now, unfortunately, the term catholic has been hijacked. It's been hijacked by the Roman Catholic Church, and by the way, that phrase is an oxymoron. Catholic we, we think, you know, when we, whenever the term catholic comes up, we think of things like people who worship and pray to Mary? Who think that Mary is their co-redemptrix? You know, and they pray to saints and they and they have the Pope and and you know all this weird nonsense that goes along with uh, Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, right? But no, 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 that's not what the term Catholic means. The term Catholic means universal. Mm-hmm. The Christian faith is the Catholic faith. It is the universal faith. It is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There is no way to reinvent Christianity. Christianity is not a human invention. Christianity is a revealed religion, and the source of that revelation is God himself. And Christianity cannot be Reinvented. So, anybody who says these words, we need to reinvent Christianity, or we've reinvented it, or people are reinventing Christianity, you should know immediately you are not dealing with somebody who holds to historic Christian doctrine. That's plain and simple. Instead, they are buying into something completely different. So we continue. It's now time to draw attention to this emerging network of networks, this rapidly growing web of communities and collective action. Notice collective. Now, this is an important part. Postmodernity is the major worldview of the emergent church and the Cana Initiative and Historically, if you understand its antecedents, we're dealing with a fascistic movement. And you need to listen, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about here, you'd go into the archives of Fighting for the Faith and listen to my lecture entitled Resistance is Feudal, You'll Be Assimilated into the Community. And that is a primer that will get you up to speed on the anti-enlightenment and the postmodern worldview and and its brand of collectivism so that you can understand that. So let me continue reading. Let's call it a Collective Action Network of America, otherwise Cana. Not a bad acronym. It calls forth the vision of the promised land, but also the town where Jesus did his first miracle. And let's turn the bitter waters of discord and dissent into the fragrant wine of new partnerships. Oh, boy. <clears throat> let me fast forward a little bit. Important part here. There's a set section in here entitled Generous Christianity. And here's what it says To be a Christian in a generously orthodox way is not to claim to have the truth captured, stuffed, and mounted on the wall. It is rather to be a loving community of people who are seeking the truth on the road of mission and who have been launched on the quest by Jesus who is with us and guides us still. That's a quote from Brian McLaren's. A generous orthodoxy, which, by the way, this is utter nonsense, okay? Uh, to be a Christian in a generously orthodox way is to not claim to have the truth stuffed, captured, and mounted on the wall. Um, <clears throat> there, There's a, a there's a slippery thing going on here, and you have to get behind it a little bit presuppositionally, okay? Now, he, here's the idea. If I were to tell you that there are no absolute truths ever except for this, that there are no absolute truths, You'd say, um, wait a second. You're saying that there's no absolute truth, but you're also saying that the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. That's silly. Right. That's the self defeating nature of relativism. Okay. But what's going on here is something very similar. Okay. When somebody like a Brian McLaren and then the Kane Initiative, quoting Brian McLaren, say, to be a generous, to be in, in a generous, Generously orthodox way is to not claim to have truth captured, stuffed, and mounted on the wall. <clears throat> now, that sounds like, oh, you're being open and stuff like that. No, you're not. Okay? There's a trick here because the person making the claim has truth captured, stuffed, And mounted on the wall. And the truth is that there is no absolute truth. That's the truth that they've discovered that they have captured and stuffed and mounted on the wall. It's really a self defeating philosophy that we're getting from the Emergent Church Movement and now the Cana Initiative. Okay? So let me read a little bit more here. It's all too easy to name the problems, the qualities we don't like in Christians and in the church. Intolerant, divisive, exclusivistic, closed-minded, backwards-looking, dogmatic. It's human, all too human to see the negatives and fall into the complaining, and from there into name-calling. I see. So um, christianity the problem with Christianity is that it's divisive. That's right. Christianity divides truth from error, darkness from light, uh huh, good from evil, that it's closed-minded. Yes, the truth is exactly that. And the funny thing is, is that the person here complaining about the closed-mindedness of Christianity, they will tolerate every opinion except the opinion that says that Christianity is the only way. Then they become extremely closed-minded and intolerant that it's backward-looking, oh yeah, you know, to Scripture, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and that it's dogmatic, you know, like where the Scripture says, teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. These people are not Christian. They are attacking Christianity while claiming to be Christian. And uh, let's just say that this is like, what, attempt number three to kind of reignite the emergent flame. And uh, I, uh, I, for one, am hoping that they have another false start and that the Cana initiative flops and that they'll have to uh, go back to the drawing board and try again to rebrand themselves to to make it so that, oh, we're, you know, we've, you know, they finally can, (laughs) I hope they never really ever come back. That's the best way I can put it, but this is just another attempt to reignite the flames of the dead uh, emergent church Movement and fan it back into flames, but <clears throat> doesn't seem like it's going to work. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. When in there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a sermon from the orchard in Aurora, Illinois on embracing doubt. That's going to be a train wreck. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why yes, I am. Can I interest you in some?
3: Braah! You're listening to Byron Christian Radio.
0: back hour number two of fighting for the faith what we're going to be listening to is what happens to a pastor who has imbibed on uh rob bell books brian mclaren books tony jones Padgett books and bought into the whole emergent thing they end up losing their faith and think that somehow doubt is a christian virtue yeah i'll explain in a second good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the orchard in Aurora, Illinois. Scott Hodge presiding. The name of the sermon is Trusting God with Doubts. Now, over the years, I've watched Scott Hodge literally be infected by the emergent movement, its authors, and it's completely shaken what faith he's had and literally left a shadow of what it is that he was. He does not even attempt in this sermon to actually exegete anything from God's word. This kind of reads more like a very sad page or two from his journal. And, um, you know, I actually feel bad for him. Because we can know and we can be certain that Christ is who he claimed to be, that he rose from the grave and that he died for our sins, and that we're saved. But this, this is not what he preaches. Instead, this is somehow teaching an embracing of doubt, which is what the emergence would have you do, which is very postmodern and very destructive to Christian faith. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Scott Hodge in Trusting God. With doubts, here we go
1: don 't be afraid, Mary. the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will he will be very great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, his kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel. But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. Good morning. You guys ready for this weather to be over with, or what? guys to really pray for me because today I'm uh, getting on an airplane and going to uh, be in Maui for a week. I'm totally lying. I, I just wanted to say that. If so, something felt, felt really good to say that, I wish it was true. So I don't know if any of you uh, know of some folks out in Maui that might need a pastoral visit or something and you know, maybe help me out with some airfare or whatever, I would definitely consider that. Uh, well, hey, it's good to see you guys. We're we're continuing
0: a conversation we began uh, three weeks ago, I guess. Now about now, I have to explain something. The guy who read the uh, gospel text that supposedly forms the basis of this left an important part out. Okay, you need to see mechanically what's going wrong here with the, uh, the the way the sermon is going, and that is is that he left out the important part because what Scott Hodge is going to do is use the story of the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary that she would uh, give birth to Jesus as as basically, you know, kind of a springboard into, and oh, and look, and she wrestled with doubt. But the guy who read the gospel text omitted a very important part. So let me back this up, and I'm going to take a look at the uh, gospel of Luke chapter 1, and um, we'll start at verse 34. So Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Legit question, Okay. Um, the, the angel then answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, that's where the guy ended, but let me keep reading. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, and she has conceived a son, and is in the sixth month with her, who was called Baron, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word and then the angel departed uh-huh and this is in direct contradistinction to um the how Zechariah responded when the angel appeared to him to tell him about his son who would who would become John the Baptist Zechariah actually had doubts and he was um well he was punished severely. He wasn't able to speak until the child was born as a result of the fact that he didn't believe. Okay. Mary's the exact opposite. She says, Let it be to me as the angel, uh, you know, let it be to me according to your word. So she believed straight up. Now, the reason I say this is because you got to get this context of what it is that Hodge is doing here because he's not going to, he's not carefully exegeting. He's hunting for stories that he thinks kind of tell the story of doubt. But when you push on it, um, you find out that he's not rightly handling God's word. We continue. Yeah,
1: three weeks ago, I guess now about trust, and uh, we've been talking about some different areas of our lives that we want to learn to trust God with. And this weekend, we're going to talk about an area that I think affects all of us, even though we don't always—we're not always quite honest about it. But I want to talk this weekend about our doubts. How do we trust God with our doubts? And uh, in particular, when I say doubts, I guess what I what I'm talking about are the kind of doubts that you and I experience at times throughout our spiritual journey. Doubts about about God, about about faith, uh, maybe about the Bible, about about belief, or, or whatever it might be. Those are the kind of doubts I really want to talk about today. And and I got to say, you know, there's times that I stand up here and talk about certain things that. Um, I feel a little less qualified to talk about. Th- this is one of those things, doubt, doubt is one of those things that I feel extremely qualified, actually, to talk about. And, and the reason I say that is because, you know, um, believe it or not, I know this, this may shock some of you, um, you know, e- even though I was, I was raised in the church, even though I've, you know, I've been a pastor for 17 years now, e- even, even with all of that, um, I still wrestle through quite a bit of doubt in my spiritual journey. I have a lot of doubt. And, and I'll be honest with you, if I were to, in, in most churches, if I were to say that, people get nervous. Maybe some of you, a little bit nervous right now. Right? But there, there's some churches, if I were actually to list out and say, okay, here are my doubts. Let me just share them openly with everyone. There's some churches that, well, if I were the pastor, I'd probably lose my job. I have doubt. I have a lot of doubt. But I also have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith as well. And I know some of you might hear that, and you might think to yourself, well, "Wait a minute, that's kind of a, isn't that kind of an oxymoron, Scott? I mean, how how can you how can you have, have faith and and doubt uh, at the same time?" But but the truth is, I, I do. I have both. I have faith, and I and I have my doubts. And, and I know that can be hard for some of us to to grasp or to to maybe comprehend because I think we have this tendency to um, so, sort of see faith and doubt as these polar opposites, don't we? Right, so it's like we, we, we kinda look at at faith and we say, Okay, well, I, I can't really be a strong person of faith, but also be a person who has a lot of doubt. Right? It's either one or the other. It's like we have these two categories. It's like on one side we have we have the faith category and, and in that category, you know, are words like certainty and answers and you know, I, I'm settled in my faith or whatever. And then on the other hand you have doubt, which doubt would be, you know, like uncertainty, right? And and questions and, and being unsettled about some things. And we, we look at that and we think to ourselves, well, man, you know, um, it, 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 this can't be, right? I mean, or or if, if it is, maybe it means I'm not a good person of faith. I, I have weak faith. Maybe it means I'm not a very good Christian. Um, and, and I think as a result of that, a lot of us just have no idea what to do with our doubt. Yeah, I think a lot of people have no idea how to handle their doubts.
0: Now, listen, this is a real problem. This is a real problem because it's easy to have doubts when it comes to being a Christian. We believe in a good God. Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? This is the kind of question that might cause you to have nagging doubts. And then you might say to yourself, come on, do I really believe that Jesus was born from a virgin? Virgins don't give birth. I mean, really? We really believe that story? And then you might say, Jesus really bodily rose from the grave? I've never seen anybody rise from the grave. Every dead person that I've come across stays dead. I mean, and you want us to... Really, how can we be certain of such things? And see, th- th- these are those are the types of doubts that really come up in Christianity. Is um, are, are we really saying that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Come on, I mean, my neighbor is more moral than I am, and you're you're going to tell me he's not a good person and that he's not going to go to heaven just because he's an atheist or he follows Buddha? Really? Yeah, you see, these are the types of questions that cause doubts, right? And It's because our sinful nature rebels against the truth in one way or another. And these are the types of things that we do wrestle with. And then it really gets difficult when you sit there and you think, God, what have I done to deserve what's happening to me? Maybe you're going through your fourth round of chemotherapy. Um you're you know down to skin and bones and you you know you're you're barely hanging on to life by a thread and everything's been very difficult for you and it's been very painful. What do you do in a situation like that? Do you think that you know you think you doubt God's goodness and you doubt that he's there, you doubt that he hears you, right? Okay? Doubt is a very real issue that every Christian deals with. Every Christian deals with it. And the idea here is is that faith is the thing that trusts God even though he takes you through the valley of the shadow of death, because Scripture prepares you for the suffering. Scripture prepares you from the mockery that you're going to receive and the scoffing that you're going to receive from people who say, come on, really? You think Christianity is the only religion that's true? I mean, were you born under a rock? Did you fall off the turnip truck? Christian the scriptures prepare you for this type of stuff. And it's not that we believe despite the evidence. That's not what Christianity actually calls you to do. Christianity teaches you to believe that believe and that there is actually evidence to support the claim. How do we know? That, there, that uh, Jesus is who he claimed to be? Well, 500 people, according to the eyewitnesses, witnessed Jesus alive after he had been crucified and was dead and buried and buried for three days. And so now, does that give you absolute certainty? Absolutely not. But does it give you something you can hang on to? Yes. Now, what else can we hang on to? You've got fulfilled prophecy. You know the, the the literally the statistical probabilities of any one man prof, uh, fulfilling the, all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Some of them he could have clearly orchestrated himself, but a large majority of them, there's no way he could have jerry-rig that, right? So there's there are reasons to believe. It's not like you know Christianity doesn't say just leap into the darkness, okay? But <clears throat> keep in mind. Nobody disbelieves Christianity due to lack of evidence. Nope. Everybody, deep down, because we have the law written on our hearts, knows that there's a God and knows that this message about Jesus is true this is just within the collective consciousness and i don't mean that in you know some weird esoteric way i mean that because we have the law written on our heart um you know that we all know that this that there is a god and that he's true and we know that jesus is that god we all know this all right? And so it's not that people it, people don't disbelieve because of evidence. They suppress the truth, and they suppress the evidence because of their sinfulness. That's something that you got to keep in mind. And because Christians still have a sinful nature until they either die or are resurrected, our sinful nature is going to be warring against us, warring against the new man in you, warring against your faith. And so this is all the things that, you know, the, it's all part of, of you know, the experience, if you would, of being a Christian. Being a Christian is difficult. It's not easy. But the thing you don't do is embrace doubt because Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction or the certainty of things that are not seen For by it the men of old received their commendation. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not made a out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him up. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is childlike trust and belief. And knowing that God is true, it's certainty, it's not doubt. Faith is trusting. Doubt is the opposite of faith. It is not, it, it is not conducive with faith, and it gnaws away at faith. faith. Doubt is not something that we're to embrace. Doubt is something that we're to mortify, along with our other sinful passions and the, and the other manifestations of our sinful flesh. We continue. They ignore them. They pretend
1: they're not there. And so they just lean into uh, the, the things they, they are pretty certain about. You know, they lean into the, the, the I don't know, the Christian kind of way of, of, of cliches and all of that. Uh, and I think they do that because they're afraid. They don't know where those doubts may lead them. Right? So they deny them. They repress them. And, and unfortunately, though, that, that actually ends up often, quite often hurting your faith more than anything. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who uh, just kind of freak out. They, they just kind of, uh, I, I don't know, they, they, um, they get wigged out by their doubts. They start to question things, and, and they sort of get this mentality that says, okay, well, if this piece isn't true, well,
0: then the whole thing must be a bunch of crap. And so- yeah, let, let's kind of fill that in because he's not being very specific. Let me give you an example. Okay, in his book, Velvet Elvis, uh, Rob Bell talks about Um, You know, he describes Christianity like a trampoline with springs. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, is that, you know, you're supposed to jump and and experience Christianity by jumping on it. And he likens all of the springs to different doctrines. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is, is that, you know, you can still jump up and down and enjoy the trampoline, even if that doctrine that uh, you know Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, the, one of the springs, you could take it out, uh, you could take it off the, uh, the the trampoline and just you know get rid of it. You could still bounce on the trampoline and Christianity would still be the uh, the best way to live, even if Jesus wasn't born of the Virgin Mary. That's absolutely patently false. If Jesus wasn't born of the Virgin Mary and he is a human with a natural father like all the rest of us. Well then he's not God in human flesh. He didn't die for the sins of the world. We're still dead in our trespasses and sins. And Christianity is well, it's false. It shouldn't be followed. No one should believe it because it's not true. Okay? So this is the this is what he's alluding to, but not explicitly stating. Cow.
1: They they just kind of uh I, I don't know, they, they um they get wigged out by their doubts. They start to question things, and, and they sort of get this mentality that says, okay, well, if this piece isn't true, well, then the whole thing must be a bunch of crap. And so, and so they walk away from it. They, they're like, okay, I'm done with it. I'm done with, you know, sometimes they'll say I'm done with, with community. I'm done with, uh, with, you know, with church. I'm done with the Bible. Sometimes they even would say, like, I'm done with faith itself. Forget it. Well, today what I want to do is explore what I think might be a third option. Uh, maybe I, I could say it this way, a better option than either one of those, an option that, that takes us beyond, you know, repressing our doubts, ignoring our doubts, wigging out about our, uh, about our doubts or any of those types of things. But, but what, I, what I think I want to talk about is a way that I think we can, we can deal with our doubts um, that actually involves trusting God and embracing our doubts at the same
0: time. Uh, trusting God for what? And what do you mean embracing my doubts? Okay, let's say I'm having doubts that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. So I'm going to trust God while doubting that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Let's say I'm doubting that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. I, I doubt that about Jesus. So I'm supposed to trust God. What exactly am I trusting him for in this context then? but while embracing the fact that I doubt that Jesus is the only way. This doesn't make any sense. This is nonsense. And embracing
1: our doubts at the same time. Trusting God and actually embracing our doubts at the same time. Now, I feel like I need to give a little disclaimer because um, you need to know when I'm talking about doubt and when I'm talking about uh, the kind of people who are doubting. I, I'm not necessarily talking about because we all know these kind of people. There's people out there who um, they, they actually just kind of have already made up their minds that they're not going to believe anything. Right? Do, you, do you know anyone like that? Like they they sort of made up their minds, right? That that no matter what anybody says, no matter what happens, it, it's all it's all a farce, right? There's a, it's just they, they've already made up their minds, right? It's like the skeptic. Do you know anybody in your life that's like super skeptical? You know, it's interesting. There was a, one of the disciples actually was um, so well known for skepticism that he actually earned the nickname Doubting Thomas. And and it's interesting because you see, I think it's three times in the book of John, uh, you 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 read about you read about Thomas, and every time you read about him, the guy has some like skepticism. He just you know, and and here's the crazy thing, like he okay, Thomas knew Jesus, right? He knew the disciples. He had a relationship with them. He was very close. He heard Jesus teach. He watched Jesus perform miracles. I mean, so really, like, more than any other human being, okay, uh, Thomas had every good reason, reason in the world to believe, right? Yet, yet he refused to. He, he chose to be a skeptic, right? So, so we're not talking about that. I think some people just their minds are made up, right? And... Uh, can we tell the rest
0: of the story of Thomas here? Um... Thomas missed the first appearance of Jesus in the upper room on the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And so eight days later, this is John chapter 20, verse 26, it says this, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with him, and although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand in and place it in my side. And Jesus says to him, Do not disbelieve or be disbelieving, but believe Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas doesn't go on, you know, you know, on and on just being the skeptic and, and doubter. Once he, once he sees the risen Jesus, he stops doubting and he believes. But this is not the way Scott Hodge is telling this story. We continue.
1: Give a Seneca hug, they'll check their back pocket to make sure you didn't, you didn't take their wallet. The kind of doubt that I'm talking about today is the kind of doubt that shows up in the lives of people who are truly open. Uh, people who have the heart of a a spiritual seeker, Uh, the the, the kind of doubt that shows up in in the lives of people like you you and me, people who are in pursuit of truth, people who are in pursuit of faith, but but then things can happen in our lives, right? We we can go through a situation, we can see, you know, maybe a tragedy that occurs or something that just makes our head go tilt, and we we genuinely start to scratch our heads and and wonder and, and, and have doubt. Listen, I, I think even great people of faith have doubt. I, I heard a story recently about an old man who is nearing 90 years old, and he was asked if he, the, the question was, if, was, do you believe that when you die, that, that you, when, when you stand before God, that you're going to hear this phrase, well done, good, and faithful servant? And this old man paused, and after what seemed like a bit of a struggle, he replied with this answer, I hope so. You know who said that? This man right here. Billy Graham.
0: Okay, now I'm going to stop right there. <clears throat> That's a problem. It's a big problem. Do you believe that you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when you stand before Christ? Well, I hope so. Yikes. Where's the, what's the problem there? You're looking at yourself. Your own progress in your sanctification. You're confusing law and gospel. Will I hear, "Well done, good and faithful servant," on the uh, on the day in which I meet Jesus in judgment? You bet your bippy, I will. And you're going, well, how can you be so sure? Because I, it's not based upon me. It's not based upon anything I've done. It was all given to me as a gift. Christ is the one who lived it all perfectly, and He's the one who covers me in His righteousness. He's the one who's given me faith. He's the one who's washed away my sins, and it's this, and it's God the Holy Spirit who's sanctifying me. And well, I mean, so am I going to hear, "Well done, thou good and faithful servant"? You bet you I am. I'm going to hear that not because I'm such a great guy. It's because I'm a sinner who has been declared righteous. I have not made myself righteous, not even close to it. And my salvation is not contingent upon my progress in sanctification. So I am absolutely certain that I will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because Jesus is the one who's covered me in his righteousness and he has done it perfectly for me. You can't add to perfection. So <clears throat> you get what I'm saying? We continue. This man right here, Billy Graham.
1: I hope so. I might think any of us would look at a man like Billy Graham and say, come on. I mean, geez, I mean, if, he
0: does, if, he's, if, he, if he doesn't get in, I'm not getting in, that's for sure. Well, no one's getting in on their righteousness. No one, not one. And doubts like that show that you're looking at the law, not the gospel that's right. Doubts like that show that you're looking at yourself, not christ that's the problem. Stop looking at you we've already established that you're a sinner you ain't a, you, you are not somebody who is who is perfect in their righteousness. And, you know, you don't look at somebody like a Billy Graham and say, whoa, wow, if he's feeling that way and, you know, if he's not getting in, I'm not surely getting in. None of us are getting in on our own steam. Not one of us.
1: I hope so. You would expect maybe a little firmer answer or something, right?
0: Yeah, well, see, the law doesn't give any certainty. None. The law can't give any certainty because the law is never... Fulfilled. You never know if you've done enough to be saved by the law, now do you?
1: Let me read to you these quotes. This is from someone else, not Billy Graham. This, these, these are writings that were found in someone's journal. Look at this first one. I'll put them on the screen. Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. Listen and do not hear. Let me show you another one. Same person. I utter words of community prayers and try my utmost to get out of every word the sweetness it has to give. But my prayer of union is not there any longer. I no longer pray. You know who said that? This lady right here, Mother Teresa.
0: Yeah, and that would be expected because Roman Catholicism is the most complex and entrapping works based religion on the planet next to Islam. This lady right here, Mother Teresa.
1: You know, how many of you ever, uh, how many, any, any uh, good Lutherans in the house, huh? We have a few Lutherans here. Everybody's. Yeah, I'm a Lutheran. No, you have to be ashamed. It's okay. So how about this, the great great Martin Luther, right, the champion of justification by faith, right? Well, one day he's approached by this elderly woman who uh, is troubled by doubt. Tell me, Martin Luther asked her, he says, tell me, when you recite the creeds, do you believe them? The old lady said, well, yes, most certainly I do. Then go in peace, Martin Luther said, because you believe more and better than I do. It's Martin Luther.
0: Yeah, a story out of context there. Let's throw a little context onto Martin Luther's theology. Uh, toward the end of his life, he had his great debate with Erasmus, and it's a recorded for us in this wonderful book called The Bondage of the Will. And in The Bondage of the Will, uh, Luther talks about certainty. mm mm-hmm. And I'm going to read to you just a couple of passages from The Bondage of the Will, and you'll kind of get the point of what it is that Luther really taught here. Um, you know, Scott Hodges kind of hijacked Luther here to make him, you know, into some big doubter, you know, as if he was somehow embracing doubt, and he was not. Here's what Luther wrote. to uh, Erasmus, it says, "...so far am I from delighting in the opinion of the skeptics that whenever the infirmity of the flesh will permit, I will not only consistently adhere to and assert the sacred writings everywhere and in all parts of them, but I will also wish to be as certain as possible in things that are not vital and that lie outside of the Scripture. For what is more miserable than uncertainty?" In fact, he then writes, Anathema, be the Christian who is not certain and does not grasp what is prescribed for him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, you kind of get the idea here. Um, Here's what he also says. He says, For I have said all of this so that you may henceforward cease from charging me with obstinacy and uh, willingness in this matter. By such tactics you only succeed in showing that you foster in your heart a Lucian, or some other pig from Epicurus sty who having no belief in god himself secretly ridicules all who have belief and confess it permit us christians to be asserters to be devoted to assertions and delight in them while you stick to your skeptics and your academics till christ calls you too the holy spirit is no skeptic and it's no, and it's not doubts or mere opinions that he has written on our hearts but assertions more sure and certain than life itself and all experience. I think you get the point there, is that uh, Luther was not one for embracing doubts. In fact, if you read the opening chapters of The Bondage of the Will, he literally just goes after Erasmus and his pre-postmodern, postmodern postmodern way of approaching things and being uncertain and being skeptical. Mm -hmm. We continue. Full of faith, no matter how uh,
1: committed or spiritual or saintly, or, or mystical, or faithful, or whatever you want to call, no matter no, no, matter how much of a person of faith an individual might be, no one is exempt from experiencing moments or seasons of doubts in their life. No one. No one. And if you're still not convinced of that, then, then read your Bible. You know, I mean, th- think about, I mean, goodness, the, the verse that, that Brian read a few minutes ago. I mean, you have Mary, right, the mother Of Jesus, and an angel comes down and says, "Like, hey, you're going to give birth to the to to the Son of God." And what does Mary do? Mary says, "Ah, what? Well, how can this be since I'm a virgin?" Right. And then then let's just keep following that, right? Let's look at Jesus. I mean,
0: yeah. You again. You're when you had your guy read that passage, you left out the important part where she said, "Let it be to me according to your word." She believed
1: keep following that, right? Let's look at Jesus. I mean, Jesus, uh, some of his last words on the cross are what? My God, my God, why
0: have you forsaken me? Yeah, Jesus wasn't doubting at that moment. He was experiencing the wrath of God in our place on the cross. This is Jesus on the cross questioning
1: God. So faith and doubt, okay, are they polar opposites? Or, yes, they are, ebb and flow of a growing, healthy spiritual journey. I mean, could, could it be that our doubts actually work like a signal or a, or a I don't know, almost like a pulse, right? Like it, our doubts serve as a sign that our faith is actually alive. That our faith is actually moving and exploring and searching and open. Could, could it
0: be that that without... Could it be? Could it be? Could it be? Could you actually give me a real text in context that actually teach what teaches what you're trying to be selling here?
1: Without doubt. I mean, could it be that if you've come in here today and you have doubts, that's actually a better sign than the person who's come in here today with zero doubts and has God think, thinks they have God all figured
0: out. I have certainty, and I'm also certain that I haven't got God all figured out. I merely believe what he's revealed about himself, and I know that that's true. And statements to the contrary of what he's revealed about himself are false. Do I have God all figured out? Not even close. I What I know, I barely even know about him. And the person who's come in here today
1: with zero doubts and has God think, thinks they have God all figured out. I mean, why would we expect otherwise, right? I mean, if you think about, you know, in, in, in Moses' day, right, they they would, um, the, you know, the way that you honored and the way that you you respected whatever gods you followed in that time is you would you would make carvings, right, and you would you would create these uh, these sculptures and you would bow down to them and you would worship them, right? And what are well, what are they doing? Well, they're they're trying to create something they can wrap their mind around, right? And yet here's Moses, you know, Moses, like confronting people with this entirely new understanding and new concept of what the true God
0: is like, right? And and here you have Moses, like he's... Where did Moses get his ideas about God? Did Moses just make them up in his mind or were they revealed to him? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, this is one of the emergent ploys. Oh, yeah, you think you have God all figured out and you've, you've you've made God into an idol. No, I haven't. I've just believed what he's revealed about himself in his word. That's not making an idol. That's believing the truth. It's believing what God has revealed about himself. Big difference. Big difference. We continue.
1: Writers go, go to such great lengths to, to describe a God, to describe a being with no edges, no boundaries, no beginning, no ending, no limits. And so it makes sense that when, you know, Moses is like, so, hey, um, being, what is your name? God says what? I am. And what? I am. Hmm which I'm sure completely brought a great amount of clarity to Moses in that moment. Oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. No, come on. Maybe, you know, perhaps it's God's way of saying, like, look, if your goal is to figure me out and, and totally understand me and put me in a box, let me tell you something it's not going to happen. I mean,
0: I mean, look. Yeah, that, the, the, the answer, I am, there was a question. The question was, what is your name? Who should I say sent me? okay. The answer to the question was, I am. If you know what the question is, then you understand how the answer fits. Okay, Moses wasn't learning some new grand concept about God. He was learning God's name to say who sent him. I mean, mean, look, even my name is more than you can comprehend. So
1: you think you're going to comprehend who I am? If you want a great book to read, read Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. Love this quote. Listen.
0: Yeah, Velvet Elvis is not a good book. It's horrible. It will absolutely undermine and shipwreck your faith, which explains what happened here to Scott Hodge.
1: If you want a great book to read, read Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. Love this quote. Listen, the moment God is figured out with nice, neat lines and definitions, we are no longer dealing with God. We are dealing with somebody we made up. And if we made him up,
0: then we are in control. That is a flat out lie. You can know what God has revealed about Himself in His Word with all of the clean, neat lines that go with it, because that's what God's revealed about Himself. And you believing in the God who's revealed Himself in Scripture is not believing in an idol. It's trusting what he has said. Big difference. Rob Bell is absolutely engaging in complete obfuscation here and really, in a in a very real way, calling evil good and good evil and making it so that belief and trust and knowing with certainty who God is because of who he's revealed himself to be in his word, he says that's evil and idolatry so that he can then run after this oh great mysterious mystery thing that he worships, which is really a pantheistic or panentheistic God that he worships, not the one true God. We are in control.
1: Here's what's really ironic. It's interesting to me how in the Christian faith, like we worship and we, I don't know, we celebrate, we proclaim a God who is who is bigger and greater and more powerful than words can even articulate, right?
0: I mean, we. this is the God that we believe in, uh, a God that, that is beyond... Uh, no, no, no. It's not that we worship a God who is bigger than words can articulate. It's that words have their limits as to how much they can really reveal God to us. But words where God has used human language to reveal himself, we can trust that what has been revealed there is true.
1: Powerful than words can even articulate, right? I mean, we, this is the God that we believe in, uh, a God that, that is beyond any number of words we could ever come up with, right? Come up with every word in the world, it's God still goes beyond that. And yet, think about how much effort is put forth by churches and pastors and cemeteries, I mean, se- seminaries, Sorry, I thought it was funny. Anyway, um, but, but how, much, how much effort is put in by, by books and everything else in the, in the, in
0: the Christian world uh, to do... Is this a biblical argument or just his own philosophical speculations and musings? This isn't a biblical argument. The
1: effort is put in by, by books and everything else in the, in the, in the Christian world uh, to do everything but push us into the realms of mystery. Right? It's like the exact opposite, what, what we would rather do. And, of course, we would rather do this because our ego craves uh, certainty, right? Our ego craves answers
0: and control, right? So, so that's why we... So notice, certainty now is, well, the, according to him, it has its root in ego. And it's an evil desire to have certainty regarding God. Our little, our little box... The problem with that is like, then when something happens
1: that is beyond that box, you're not sure what to do with it. I, I mean, we, we really shouldn't be, I don't think, all that shocked, all that surprised. I mean, the very nature of this God is mystery, right? And so we really shouldn't be all that shocked or surprised when we run into moments in our journey where, where we find ourselves scratching our heads and, and wondering and asking questions and, and finding ourselves filled with doubt. I mean, why? Wouldn't we? I mean, if our, if our story was about a God who we can fit in the palm of our hands, then sure, you get that down pretty quick. But that's not who God is. At least not the God we follow, right?
0: And believing what he has revealed about himself is not even close to equate, you know, the same thing as having God in the palm of your hands. That's ridiculous.
1: ...than it is about figuring out or conquering mystery. I mean, I think a lot of us would have a lot less problems with with doubt if we could just say, okay, you know, right up front, this is going to be a faith that's going to bring doubt at times. Can I say something for me personally? I, I can't tell you how much uh, to, to to be able to think and to doubt and to question and to wrestle has done the exact opposite of what a lot of people think it will do. A lot of people think if I doubt and wrestle and start asking questions, I'm going to lose my faith and I'm going to end up being an atheist or something. Or I'm going to, you know, join, you know, some go go Become a Satanist or something, right? Like something really
0: bad will probably happen. Now, keep in mind, who was the one who first sowed the seeds of doubt? It was the serpent. It was Satan in the garden when he said, "Did God really say, huh,
1: something? I'm gonna, you know, join, you know, some go, go become a Satanist or something, right? Like something really bad will probably happen." Um, but can I tell you something? My my journey and me and the ability that I've had and the privilege I've had, even as a pastor, to be able to still think and doubt and question and wrestle, has actually done the exact opposite. What it's done for me is it's caused
0: my faith to become more real and more faith in who, faith in who for what, what what does the word faith mean in this sentence?
1: Forty years. I mean, it, my faith has become like this living. Yes, messy, but living, breathing experience in my life. <laughs> I love this quote. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. You ever right, ants in your pants? I have. Yeah, I was in Thailand, sleeping one, one day. Dan, you were with me, man. Right there. Sleeping. Having a dream that something bad was happening to me. People were poking me with something sharp and hot and painful, and I woke up and my body was covered in fire ants. True story, isn't it, Dan? I jumped. up. Listen, you've never seen someone move as fast as I moved in that moment. I'm not going to tell you what else I did, but but I'll tell you, like it was it was it was a, it woke me up, man. And I, and I and listen, I think it's so true. Like doubts are that, right? Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake. They keep it moving. So here's what I want to do. If you have a
0: pen, I want to ask you to take it out. Okay, again, notice, um, where in the Bible does it say that doubt is the ants in the pants of faith that keeps it moving and makes it really alive? There isn't a passage of Scripture that says any of this stuff. Where is he getting it from? From his own experience. But what we've heard of his theology so far doesn't even remotely sound like Christian theology. So you think doubt has had a really positive impact impact on Scott Hodge's faith? No. You think reading Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and guys like that has had a positive impact on his faith? Not in the true sense of biblical saving faith in Christ and the certainty that it produces. That's talked about in, in Hebrews chapter one, verse uh, eleven, verse one. Not even close. We're hearing the opposite of it, and we're hearing his musings. His, I feel like you know he should be sitting on a couch, and I should be taking notes while sitting in a chair. We're not hearing about Christian faith. We're hearing his musings. This is autobiography masquerading as Christian theology. We continue.
1: Or take your camera or your phone and take some pictures of what we're going to talk about. Three things I want to give you. Because we've been talking about how faith is not just, uh, okay, just this decision you make. All right, now I'm going to be a person, or, or trust, I'm sorry. That I'm now this perfect person of trust, and so I'll just sit back and twiddle my thumbs. Trust trust involves action, right? Trust involves a posture. And so I want to give you three things that, that I think will help us deal with this thing called doubt. And, and, and it will help us be able to trust God with it, all right? Three things. The first one is this. Listen. Trusting God with my doubts, I think what it means is instead of running away and hiding and denying and pretending they're not there, um, I think instead it's the exact opposite. I think think if I'm going to trust God with my doubts, it means that I have to learn how to embrace my doubts. Embrace my doubts. Would you say that with me? Ready? Embrace.
0: Embrace my doubts. Why? They war against my faith.
1: You do that. You allow yourself to do that. I think this also means that, that we got to be willing to em- embrace the questions that lead us into doubt, right? I mean, I think, so- listen, it's mind-blowing to me how many Christians are so afraid of questions.
0: There's- the questions come. It's You need to get answers to them. You don't just sit there and embrace, you know, oh, I'm going to embrace the question. No, no, questions need answers. And the answers that, that are there buttress and support faith. You know, you can't, you know, listen, the questions come. This is true. They do come. You don't need to be afraid of them. Christianity actually is not something that's a, you know, castle built on sand. It's built on the rock. So, yeah, questions should be allowed. Questions should be allowed to be asked so that there can be answers given. They're scared to death to ask
1: questions, right? I mean, because they feel threatened by them. Listen, let me tell you something. Do do you want to get Christians all up in arms. Let me tell you how to do it. I've learned well, all right? Go to Facebook. Or as as this morning I was talking to my daughter and her friend and we were talking about other names for Facebook. Fakebook, Spacebook, Wastebook. I like that one the best. Wastebook. Anyway, no, you listen, do you want to see a bunch of Christians get all up in arms? post something, or ask, ask a question that, that pushes against or even just challenges what they believe. Just ask, you, don't have to, you don't have to give what you think the answer. Just ask the question. Ask.
0: Is it questioning what, quote, Christians believe or what Scripture teaches that Christians believe? See, again, big difference. You know, seriously, if I were to go on to Facebook and say, yeah, that virgin birth thing sure does seem stupid. Yeah, there would be Christians who would be upset at me for saying that. And they should be. It's, But it's not because they believe it. It's because God's word teaches it. That's why they believe it.
1: It's a question that challenges their doctrine.
0: Mm-mm. Like, listen, I can. Their doctrine? No. That challenges biblical doctrine. Christians are not supposed to have their own doctrines. I
1: can, I can post something about Jesus, 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 and like three people will like it. But then I post something that challenges or pushes against some thinking, and all of a sudden, there's like a hundred comments on there. People get so defensive, right? And, and
0: they think it's what
1: they, I don't know why, why
0: but... Is it that they're defensive or that they're defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints? There's a difference.
1: If you just look at it and go, well, man, if you really are pretty firm about what you believe, then I don't think you really have to get so defensive. Right? Ask questions that challenge those nice, clean, linear lines that, that they're so certain about. Let me tell you something. A person who, who trusts God with their doubts does not avoid questions. They embrace questions. Embrace them. Listen, at the end of the day, let me tell you what's scary. It's not questions. I mean, yeah, they can lead you some, somewhere crazy sometimes. But, but what's worse than, than and what's, what's, uh, what's scarier than, than questions is the person who doesn't have any questions at all. Right? I mean, listen, and, and take it a step further. What's really tragic is when you have a faith that has no room for questions. Listen, I don't know about you, but, but there are times growing up in the church that people would tell me, like, no, no, you just stay away from those questions. Those aren't great. You shouldn't
0: be asking yourself those questions. It's not going to lead you anywhere good. Christianity has nothing to fear from questions. Questions should be allowed so that the answers can be given. Let me tell you
1: something. Here's the beauty of questions. No matter how shocking or, or you know, I don't know, how how crazy a question might be, you know what questions do is questions bring us into a place of humility.
0: Questions. Yeah. Do you think that's what this, the uh, serpent was doing in the garden? Just asking a question in order to help humanity into a place of humility. Did God really say, yeah, so that was just a question. Uh Did humanity end up in humility as a result of that question? Yeah, not all questions are good. Not all questions are well-intentioned. Some questions are used as a weapon to create doubt and to destroy faith.
1: Questions help remind us of this big revelation, ready, Brr, that I am not God. Hmm? I am not God. Let's, should we say it together? It seems like maybe a good thing to say. Ready? I am not God. You ever read the story of Job. I love the story of Job. I mean, I don't love the story in the sense... Yeah,
0: I, I, in fact, I'm reading it now. I've been reading it this week. Sense that I
1: would want anything like that to happen in my life. But um, I would just say that, like, the story of Job is great because it's like this... It is like a... Uh, uh, just a, a factory of doubt, right? I mean, you know, the... the You know what hits the fan in Job's life. And what does he do? Well, he kind of wigs out. Like he starts to doubt God's goodness, doubt God's presence, God's, I don't know, his character. Um, What version of Job are you reading?
0: And all this stuff. I mean, almost on the verge of like being blasted. I mean, seriously, his wife tells him to curse God and die and he won't. I mean, what are you talking about?
1: like some of the things job is like talking about like you you'd be you wouldn't want to say probably right and, and so here's job you know he's 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 saying you know questioning and then his 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 christian friends come along and his i mean of course there's no such thing at that so point. he's
0: recasting the story of job so that job is the good guy the reason he's a good guy is because he's embracing doubt and the bad guys his comforters come along and try to give him certainty Wow, talk about a twisting and re, you know, recasting, reimagining of the book of Job that doesn't make any sense if you actually read the book.
1: Point, But I mean, his, you know, his super faith friends come along, and they try everything they can to like, speak on behalf of God to try to like, cure Job of his doubt. As sort you of chastise him. What are you doing? Be careful. Right? Well, then finally God shows up. And when God shows up, you won't believe what God does. God actually sides with Job and says, Hey, to his friends. He actually says to his friends, Look, he says, I'm angry with you. He's speaking to the person who's like talking faith, right? And, and, and like trying to stop this doubt happening in Job's life. He says, I'm angry with you and your two friends.
0: Again, um, the issue is not that his friends had certainty and that Job was embracing doubt. The, Job's comforters had really. Really bad theology. Their comfort was with bad doctrine, bad theology. That was the issue. And thankfully, Job did not listen to them because his faith was still firm in God. Knuckleheads, for
1: you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. Wait a minute. Ah, listen, Job wasn't speaking accurately about God. So what in the heck is God talking about? I mean, somehow, like, there was more faith in Job's honest confusion and doubting than there was in his, his, his friend's certainty. I think it says something to us, doesn't
0: it? It says that you have no clue what the book of Job is about.
1: Maybe God's more pleased when you embrace your doubts than when you try to hide them.
0: Oh, man. This is serpentine.
1: Because at least that's being honest, right? And Jesus was always way more concerned about what's going on within the heart of a person. I mean, the Pharisees, the religious people could could give all the great answers and quote all the great scriptures. And Jesus always looked past that and said, what's going on on the inside? Madeline L'Engle, she she said this, those who believe, they believe in God. Uh, That right there is something to think about. Those who believe, they believe in God. But without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God
0: and not in God himself. What? Isn't Madame Lengel uh, a a mystic? Okay, listen to this last part of this quote again from Madame Lengel. And tell me if this is what scripture teaches. Listen again. But without passion in the heart, without anguish of
1: mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe
0: only in the idea of God and not in God himself. So we're supposed to believe in the idea of God, but not God himself. This is rank apostasy. This is not Christianity. Christianity and the scriptures teach you to believe and trust in God, for the forgiveness of your sins not to believe in the idea of god wow questions root us
1: uncertainty roots us in humility i'm going to tell you something religious fanatics always lack humility you ever notice that huh i mean listen this describes every every uh, uh fundamentalist that i've ever known
0: and yet it is completely arrogant of you to say the exact opposite of scripture
1: lacks humility. I, I'm telling you, like, do you, maybe you don't know any fundamentalists. Lucky you. All right, listen, fundamentalists. First of all, like there's no room for questions, right? No room for doubt. And if you start to question and if you do start to doubt, well, get ready because they will nail your butt, right? And they'll do everything they can to t- tell you why you are wrong. And they have the market on the truth. They're not real happy people. And they call them fundamentalists. Isn't that funny? No,
0: yeah, so if, if you think you have, if you have the truth, you have the market. You're just an arrogant fundamentalist. Again, false category ad hominem argument. And Christianity has nothing to fear from questions. Questions come. And Christians and pastors need to be prepared to field these questions and give good, godly answers from God's Word. And where somebody contradicts the teaching of Scripture, they are to be rebuked because Scripture says so. But what Scott Hodge is here doing is basically throwing out the same old, tired, emergent arguments. Oh, you think you have God figured out? You have Him in the palm of your hands. You're believing in an idol. You're just a You're just an angry fundamentalist. And, you you know, you think you're smarter than everybody else. That's not an argument. And the advice that he just gave from Madame Lengel completely contradicts Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it teach you to embrace doubt. It is doubt in God's words that led to humanity being where we are in the first place under the curse and needing to be rescued by Christ. We continue.
1: Funny? Fun? F-U-N? What the heck? Makes no sense whatsoever. Some of you listening online who are fundamentalists because you want to hear and and catch me preaching
0: heresy, okay, you're not a happy person. You are angry, right? So I'm actually going to... Yeah, by the way, I'm an extremely happy person. Extremely happy. So, I mean, he's even bad in his psychological analysis. In fact, the fact that I am forgiven and freed from the curse of the law and now free to love and serve my neighbor because of what Christ has done for me, not only is makes me happy, it gives me such joy. It's, I mean, I, there's no way to even measure it. You know, I would be absolutely miserable and to the point of slitting my wrists if I were to somehow embrace doubt. That that would make make it so that, not that I'm humble, I would have, it would, life would be meaningless. We continue. I'm going to start calling you angry mentalists, all right?
1: Forget fundamentals. Angry mentalists, how's that? All right, trusting God with our doubts means we, we embrace our doubts, all right? But it also means this, and this is really important, I think. It means that even in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of uncertainty, we, we also remain committed to the journey, to the spiritual journey. We, we remain committed. So, so the second thing I, I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, I'm going to embrace my doubts, but I'm also going to embrace my journey. Would you say that one with me? Ready? Embrace my journey. I'm going to tell you something. When I can live in the tension of uncertainty, when I can live in the tension that comes with uncertainty, and when I can do it with like, this, this courageous commitment, it changes me.
0: See, here's what happens. We become... And where does God's word say this? Where has God revealed this? This is utter arrogance on his part. To usurp what God's word has said, to completely ignore it, and to teach his own ideas as if they're true about God. This is the epitome of arrogance, not humility. Um,
1: well, maybe, maybe not more certain, but we definitely become more faithful. Have you ever thought about this? Listen, when it comes down to it, faithfulness matters much more than certainty.
0: Uh huh. Well, then we're all in trouble. Because if you're honest with yourself, remember, Jesus said, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh huh. So, how's your faithfulness measuring up? It's not. Faithfulness isn't easier. It's more difficult. In fact, it's impossible.
1: I mean, listen, that's profound. If you really think about that, right? Faithfulness matters more than certainty. It just doesn't feel as good.
0: And there isn't a single biblical passage that says this.
1: Right? Listen, those of you who are married, maybe you were married at one time, you're not now, whatever. Before you got married... It's, it's likely that you had a little part of you that was still a little bit uncertain about things, right? There's no guarantees, right? All you knew is you wanted to marry this person, and you were maybe, what, 95% certain, if that? You were pretty certain. I mean, your doubt level was very low, right? That's what I'm trying to say, right? But because you're human, you know, like, okay, we're both human. There's still going to be a little bit of doubt here and there, whatever. Well, okay, can you imagine
0: for a second if when it was time to, like, walk down that aisle and stand? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Now this is, you know, a, a religious argument based upon philosophical speculation from his personal experience. Is this anywhere to get your Christian doctrine from? Not at all. Stand up on that on
1: that platform, that church, and 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 make my commitment and say my vows to my wife, Amanda. Can you imagine if I would have said something to her like, "Okay, um, Amanda, hereby this day give you at least a good solid ninety five percent commitment in our marriage." Okay, I I I, I will be ninety five percent faithful to you as we walk together. This road, maybe 96%. But at a bare minimum, 95. So do you think that would have like gone over real well? Heck no. Are you kidding me? Not at all. See, well, no, because when you stand on that, on that platform and you make your vows and you make those commitments, you know what you're saying? You're saying, you know what? All that I am. All that I am, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health, I, I love you. I will cherish you. I give you my all. Not 95%, I give you my all. I'm all in. Period. What matters most is not certainty, it's faithfulness.
0: See, when... Yeah, um, well, that's true. Again, um, which of us are really faithful? Hmm? That's law. Certainty is believing trusting in a promise. That's the gospel, which is more important. Scripture says faith is sure of what we hope for, certain of what we cannot see. Huh?
1: See, when certainty isn't possible, and there's times that certainty is not possible. Some of you in your marriage right now, you're you're not certain that you'll still be married a month from now, a year from now, two years. You're not certain. But you know what? It doesn't matter. You can still and should still be faithful. When certainty isn't possible, faithfulness is still on the table. That's true when it comes to relationships. That's true when it comes to our spiritual journey. Listen, I'll tell you, I think there's something really powerful that happens when you're in the midst of doubt and you're struggling with uncertainty and and in the midst of all that, you decide that instead of giving up and walking away and saying, oh, it's a bunch of crap and forget it all, I think there's something really powerful that happens when you instead say, you know what, no, 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 I'm going to stay committed, even with, I'm going to stay faithful, even with my uncertainty. I'm going to stay faithful.
0: Why? How is that more authentic? rather than addressing the doubts and getting them resolved and finding the answer to them, you're just going to embrace your doubts and try to remain faithful in the midst of it? That is inauthenticity at its core. What are you talking about? This is bad advice not, and not just bad theology.
1: Listen, if you're filled with doubt right now, and, and if you have just a ton of uncertainty and you, you don't even know what you believe, let, let me just encourage you, keep pursuing. Keep, keep searching. Keep, keep looking for truth.
0: How come you're not offering any?
1: And I say keep looking for truth because I think, you know, do, do, do we believe what Jesus says about truth? I mean, look, what did Jesus He said so much about truth. Here's a couple things. John 8.32 See, here's what we do. We like to take these statements about what Jesus said about truth, and we like to say, well, what Jesus is saying is that that our religion is perfect and it has everything right and every other religion is awful and bad. We miss what Jesus was saying. It was so much deeper than that.
0: Oh, okay. So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said, right? But according to Scott Hodge... We miss the point. Listen again. See,
1: here's what we do. We like to take these statements about what Jesus said about truth, and we like to say, well, what Jesus is saying is that, that, that our religion is perfect and it has everything right and every other religion is awful and bad.
0: We miss what Jesus
1: was saying. It was so much deeper than that.
0: Mm, so what was the deeper meaning of Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me? John 8.32
1: you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's right. And Jesus is the truth. John sixteen, thirteen, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth.
0: John... That was a promise to the apostles specifically regarding recalling to mind the things that he taught, for their, so that they can have their apostolic ministry and recorded in the gospels.
1: John fourteen six, another one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John Ortberg wrote a great book on, on faith and doubt. Listen to this. This will make some of your religious toenails curl really tight, all right?
0: John Ortberg, the, uh, the guy is a Dallas Willard wannabe, probably heir apparent, na- na- the heir apparent now that uh, Willard has died, and a mystic, okay? So I'm sure I can't wait to hear what John Ortberg says because I guarantee it will probably contradict Scripture. John
1: Ortberg wrote a great book on, on faith and doubt. Listen to this. This will make some of your religious toenails curl really tight, all right? But that's okay. Listen. If you have to choose between Jesus and truth, choose truth. But according to Jesus, if you search for truth, you will find him.
0: (laughs) What does that sentence even mean? Really? Jesus is the truth? I would never have to find myself in a position between choosing between Jesus and truth.
1: There is no other way to trust Jesus than to think And question and wrestle and struggle until you come to see that he really is true. So what this also means is you don't have to wait to start this journey. I mean, some of you, you've been dipping your toes in the water a little bit. And you have this sense that, like, you have to have all your questions answered before you, you go down this path. And the truth is you don't have to. Okay, so listen, saying yes to Jesus does not mean that you have to have it all figured out.
0: I mean, I would challenge... Saying yes to Jesus, what am I saying yes to exactly?
1: I challenge you, okay, maybe you don't even believe that Jesus is who he said he, he was, okay? So, so just start to live the way of Jesus and see what happens.
0: What? So I don't believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, so I'm just going to live the way of Jesus and see what happens. The beginning of Christianity is penitence. It's repentance and faith. In him for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Plain and simple. Telling somebody, listen, it doesn't matter if you believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, just live the way of Jesus. Which part should I live? The part where he walked on the water? How about the part where he actually, with a word, silenced a storm? Should I live that? Or how about the part where he raised people from the dead? Should I live that? Or how about where he healed uh, blind people and gave the ability to walk to people who were born paralyzed? Is, can, I, can I live the way of Jesus in that way? This sentence, this concept doesn't make any sense.
1: You I mean, just start to live like Jesus. You certainly can't go wrong that way. Watch what happens. Watch where Jesus will take you. I'm going to tell you something. Embracing your journey is a lot easier to do. When you're facing uncertainty, it's a lot easier to do. When you have a community around you that not only embraces you, but that also embraces
0: So now, you, now you're going to throw me back on myself. Embracing my journey. Really? Embracing? What, that? what does that sentence even mean? Embrace my journey. I'm on my journey. I'm journeying where I'm journeying. There's nothing to embrace. I am where I am, and I'm going where I'm going. Embrace my journey. This is silly. It sounds so pious. It sounds so enlightened. It's nonsense. You need to embrace Christ. You need to trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. He is the Son of God in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended into hell and rose again on the third day for our justification. This is what you are to embrace. This is what you are to believe. This is who you are to trust, and it's for you and for your salvation and for the forgiveness of sins. He's not saying any of that. He's just offering nothing. Yeah, just just follow the way of Jesus and see if he doesn't meet you on your journey. This is gobbledygook.
1: gook. Graces your doubts, your questions. It's a lot easier to do when you have a community around you that doesn't feel the need to judge you. That doesn't feel the need to fix you and they become defensive every time you say, "Well, I don't know, I'm kind of wrestling with this." <gasps> oh, right. No, 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 no. Listen. something powerful about being able to be a part of a community that loves you, but also loves your doubts and embraces your doubts just like it embraces you. But the thing is, if you want that, then let me tell you something. Just like you you need to embrace your doubts and you need to embrace that journey, if you want that kind of community, you have to embrace that community. And so that third thing that I want to say is this. The thing that I think that will help us is, is making a commitment to say, you know what? Even in the midst of my doubts and my questions, I'm going to embrace my community. Would you say that with me? Embrace my community. Those of you listening online, if you're not a part of a faith community that allows you to ask questions and they come down on you and they judge you every time you ask questions, it might be time to find a different faith community. I'm telling you, listen, sometimes there can be so much anxiety and tension when you're wrestling through your doubts. Man, because it can feel like you just jumped out of an airplane. And you have no idea where you're going to land, if you're going to land. And, and you can, I mean, it can create a great deal of tension. But I'm going to tell you something. It's in those moments when you're a part of a community like this one, all right? And, and it's in those moments that you will feel strengthened. And you will feel, you will feel loved. You feel embraced. But the, but the other thing is you will feel centered. And I'll tell you what, when everything else around you feels like it's spinning, you need at least one or two, three things to help center you. Right? You, you need a couple of things to help you feel like you're not going crazy, right? Well, community helps with that in such a great way. You might, you might, you might be filled with questions. You might, you, you might have no idea where you're going yet. In those times, to have a consistent community to lean into that will love you and embrace you and give you space to swim around in all that tension and to wrestle with all that doubt, it's one of the most beautiful things you can imagine. Listen, I've told you that I doubt. And, and and to be really honest with you, sometimes it's really hard in my position.
0: You know, I think... Um, now, I'm sure it is. Because you know that God's word says that your job is to preach the word, but you don't believe it. That's why you don't preach it. That's why you twist it. You don't believe that Jesus is the virgin-born son of God. You don't believe that he really died on the cross. You don't believe that salvation is a free gift. You don't believe in penal substitution. And you do not believe the historic doctrines of the Christian faith because if you believe them and were certain of them, you would be preaching and proclaiming them and comforting people with those truths. Instead, you are trying to comfort people with the exact opposite of what Scripture comforts us with. You're trying to comfort people with the assurance that they can embrace their doubts rather than assuring them that Jesus is who he claimed to be and Christianity is true. All of this is this is the case. And so for Scott Hodge to say, yeah, he has a lot of doubts, this is true. We're dealing with some somebody who functionally, I mean, is to Christianity is at best an agnostic. And yet he's a pastor. This is a problem. And this is why ordination vows are important. And listen, the the idea is this is that he Scott Hodge is not the first pastor to lose his faith while being a pastor. It it happens. It happened to Rob Bell. But the problem is is that he stays on as a pastor. If he had integrity, he would say, I don't believe the historic Christian faith anymore. I need to step down because my job as a Christian pastor is to preach God's word as if it's true. But since I have doubts that it is, I have to have the integrity to be truthful and say, I can't be the visible representative teaching Christianity because I don't believe it. Instead, he stays in place, and now he's leading people into his doubts rather than rather than preaching Christ and this is the problem what should happen is is that since he's not willing to step down you know there should be a governing body in place that would politely have him step down because he doesn't hold the faith anymore that's the right thing to do and pray for him pray for him because You know, this is a terrible situation that he's in. It's a horrifyingly difficult situation. And, you know, I don't know if he's going to be able to find his way through it. But the the way he's going, he's going farther and farther away from Christ, not towards him. And he's leading the people in his congregation farther and farther away from Christ, not towards him. So, I mean, this is not good. This is the exact opposite of what should be happening, and what the exact opposite of what a Christian pastors to do.
1: There's denominations, and there's people who they don't want their pastors doubting. You know, I, I think you know. all
0: pastors have doubts. There's a difference, though, between having doubts and being unbelieving. Having those doubts master you to the point where you can no longer, with integrity, say, "I believe." That Christianity's true. I believe what Scripture says. There's a difference. That's you've crossed the line from doubt to unbelief, Scott.
1: You know? It's like, it's like one of the things, though, in the midst of all my doubt, one of the things that I think has helped me the most is, is the fact that, that, that I can't just easily walk away from the
0: community that
1: I lean into spiritually.
0: You can't walk away from the community. You've walked away from Jesus
1: spiritually. You know, I mean, it's my job, right? So it's not, I can't just like walk away from it. I mean, I could, but, but you know, that's not nice. You know, wise, not the wise thing to do, right? But I'm going to tell you something. It has, it's not always easy because there are times like, man, sometimes it can be hard for, for a pastor to be wrestling through his own doubts while also trying to lead a whole community spiritually. That's not always easy to do. But i got to tell you, in some ways, what this has done for me is the greatest thing in the world. It has forced me, in many ways, to learn how to live in the tension that's found right in between both of those things, faith and doubt. The easy thing is to walk. The easy thing is to give up. The easy thing is to deny it, to ignore it, and pretend it's not there. But if you can learn to sit in the tension right in between faith and doubt, you will be transformed, Change you. And I'll tell you what, honestly, probably what it's done for me more than anything is it, is it has caused me to become more committed than I've ever been to make sure that this community is a place where people can come, a safe place where people can come no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey, no matter if they believe just like I do or not, no matter if, 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 they, if they believe anything or not, it doesn't matter. I, my commitment has grown and I believe this place has to be the kind of place that not only loves people and accepts people just as they are, but also accepts and loves and embraces their questions and their doubts and creates a
0: safe space for them to do that. That's the kind of community I want to be a part of. You, in other words, the orchard up in Aurora is now an emergent cohort. If you don't want that, don't, don't be a part of this. If
1: you want that, come on, let's go. Because I, I think that on the other side of that is something really beautiful something really great.
0: But you don't know for sure. You think that there is, but you're not sure.
1: So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close today by gathering around the Lord's table.
0: All right. I'm going to end the sermon there because this is where he introduces the Lord's Supper and stuff. That's not Christianity. That's not Christian faith. That's unbelief that you were listening to. Big difference. Scott Hodge doesn't believe the Christian faith anymore. He doesn't. That's a sermon from a man who clearly has crossed the line into unbelief. And it's sad, because where he's leading everybody is in the same direction that he's gone. He does not have conviction regarding the truth of the claims of Christianity and of Jesus Christ. And his sermon is the exact opposite type of sermon that we would hear the apostles. Just read the sermons in the book of Acts and you can see the difference. There is no fire there. Th- there is no life. That's just darkness, doubt, and death. And he tries to comfort himself and say that it's beautiful and it's not. It's dark. Very sad. Please pray for Scott Hodge. Pray for him. Pray that God would bring him to repentance and open his eyes to the truth so that he will preach the truth with conviction and certainty. And if he won't do that, that he would step down because he has no business being a Christian pastor because he does not believe Christianity. Very sad. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.